Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler, and I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Um, It is February of 2020, and as I've been telling you over the last couple of weeks, this year on the podcast, we are doing something a little bit differently. We are receiving questions, and I and the other elders of Cornerstone will be answering the questions that we receive from you, either members of the church or some of you who are regular listeners that aren't members of the church. We've already received a handful of those questions, and uh, we've already answered a handful of those questions. If you haven't had a chance to submit your question yet, uh, we would encourage you to do so. Just go ahead. Uh, if you're a member of Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find the email addresses you'll need to send those questions to in the bulletin. You could send them to either Scott or Cody. Um, if you're wanting to submit a, a question and you're not a member of the church, you could do that through our social media outlets, either through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or even just go to cornerstonewiley.org, and you can find an email address there to send your question in, and it'll find its way to me. Now, today, we have an interesting question, one that I have received many times over the uh, my years in ministry, um, and I generally just give a very simple uh, answer to it. Uh, but today, I want to give a more thorough answer to it. The question is this, why does Cornerstone not do altar calls? Now, this question has come to me not just as I've been a pastor over the last decade at Cornerstone. Um, During my time in ministry, I've never employed altar calls. And if I've ever been asked to preach uh, in a church or even to preach, uh, do do a week of of seminar or something of that nature, I've always let the pastor know that I'm not comfortable. I don't do altar calls. and, And so I've received this question over the years in many different ways. I actually received this question very recently. Uh, It was uh, after a service here on a Sunday morning. Um, I was greeted by a man who was leaving. He and his family, they were new visitors. They had never been before. They couldn't get across town to their services. It was around the holiday season. And so he he, he and his wife and his children came to the church. They were excited about it. Um, and after the service, I met him out in the hallway, and he said, you know, thank you for the message. That was so helpful. It was encouraging. He commended me for preaching the gospel and making the gospel so clear. But then he kind of gave me a gentle rebuke for not doing an altar call. And here's what he said. He said, you never know. There may be someone here who doesn't know Christ, and they need to be able to receive Christ. And so in his mind, the altar call was the way, it was the means, it was the time when individuals who don't know Jesus have the chance, the only chance they're going to have to respond to the message of the gospel and to receive Christ. And that's not an extreme case. I've received that comment more than one occasion, and that really kind of fuels a lot of the questions that I'm asked over the years about why does Cornerstone not do altar calls? And this is kind of weird because nearly every church that I've attended in my youth, uh, every church that I've, not every church, but most of the churches that I have attended as an adult believer where I wasn't on staff, they offered some type of altar call. So it's very odd. It's, It's a little bit out of the norm for us to not do it. So here's the question. Why have we not employed that same practice that's so commonly used? Why do we do things differently at Cornerstone? And I want to try to answer this question from several angles. First, I want to answer it from just a personal angle. I want to answer it from a biblical perspective. I want to answer it from a historical perspective. And then I want to address some just a few pastoral concerns that have led me down the path that I'm on 
and believe very strongly, I'm convicted very strongly that this is the path we need to be on. So four different ways I want to answer this question. First is personal. The personal answer to this question. Um, I grew up attending an SBC church, uh, and that SBC church employed the altar call pretty much every Sunday. Um, Now, we didn't go to church every Sunday. We would usually go a couple of times each month, and there were stretches in my life where my family weren't really involved in church. Uh, But I was always near the church. I was always close to the church, and it was was an important part of our lives as a family. Um, I had a, f- a handful of friends that, that went to the same church with me, and, and some of these friends actually lived in the same neighborhood as me. We went to school together. We played sports together. So these were really good friends of mine, kids that I had grown up with. And so really for me, the highlight of Sunday was seeing my friends uh, and you know cutting up with them. Uh, for some reason, our parents let us all sit together at the front of the auditorium with no parents in sight. And I, I know why they did that. They just wanted to get rid of us for a little while. But here's what we were doing. We weren't paying attention. We weren't listening. We were passing notes. We were sharing candy. We were drawing pictures. We were whispering jokes to one another. We were basically just entertaining ourselves through the service, me and about five other kids my age. But at the end of our pastor sermon each week, he would go through the altar call process. He would he would begin to talk about the holiness of God. He, he would point out our sin and our need of a Savior. He would almost always speak of hell and God's judgment. And then he would ask in some varied question if we wanted to be saved from the judgment of hell. Now, he was, he was doing his best to try to articulate the gospel in the way that he had been taught, in the way that he knew it should be done. And, and usually it was at this point that I and all of my friends would sober up a little bit. We would get quiet. Um, and, and we would just be respectful, whether we were really into that moment or not. We would be respectful of that moment because we, we sensed the gravitas of the moment. The pastor would tell us, the whole congregation, that if we hoped to avoid God's judgment, that we needed to confess our sin and we needed to turn from our sins. We needed to ask the Lord to forgive us and, and we needed to ask God to send Jesus into our hearts. We needed to ask for salvation. And to do that, we needed to repeat a prayer after him. And once he had recited that prayer, he would ask every head to bow and every eye to close. And then the actual altar call would commence. He would call for people who had prayed with him to raise their hand. He would ask for them to slip out of the aisle and make their way down front. If no one moved, he would ask if anyone was under conviction, if anyone had sin in their life that they needed to confess. And once they had raised their hands, they were instructed to come forward to do business with God at the altar. Now, this would go on for minutes, sometimes 10 to 15 minutes. And the whole time this was happening, the pianist was playing Just As I Am very softly in the background. This was this ritualized process of how we came to the end of a service and we did business with God. Now, most weeks I would pray that prayer just to be safe. And on two occasions, I actually stepped out and went forward. I was nine the first time. I was 13 the second time. And on both occasions, I had no true knowledge of the gospel. I had not been born again, but I had been told that since I had prayed, I had come under some sense of guilt or conviction. Since I had prayed, come forward, confessed um, to the church that I wanted to be saved, I wanted to be with Jesus, and then I was later baptized, that I was told that I was saved. And once I was saved, once I'm saved, I'm always saved. 
Now, I wasn't truly saved. My heart and life had not changed in biblical proportions. I had a false hope that I had done the right business with God, but I was still dead in my sins. And it wasn't until years later, while I was in college and I was sitting on my couch in my college apartment with my friend, uh, when another one of my friends came into that apartment, he sat down beside me, he opened his Bible in the midst of a, of a room that was very hostile to anything that had to do with spirituality, much less biblical Christianity, and that friend shared the gospel with me, and on that night and in the midst of my sin, God changed me. God caused me to be born again. One moment I didn't care about God in any way, the next moment I, could, I didn't want anything but Christ, and I have been walking with God ever since. I didn't walk an aisle. I didn't pray a magic prayer. I didn't ask Jesus into my heart in that formulaic way that had been demonstrated to me all of my life. But all of a sudden, the gospel made sense. I knew and felt the reality of my sin. I knew and felt that I deserved God's judgment. I didn't understand how, but I knew and felt that Jesus was my only hope. And so I believed in him and I cried out for him to save me. And I began the process of repenting of my sin and learning how to follow him. So as a new believer, a genuine believer now, the mystique about the altar call was completely ruined on me. In fact, my earlier experience had caused me at this time now to be very suspicious of the practice because I had gone through it for so, you know, in so many times in so many ways and seen so many of my friends do the same and have seen absolutely no change in their lives. And yet here I was and God did something in me that I could not explain. And it had nothing to do with the church. It had nothing. Well, it had everything to do with the church in terms of the, the historical church, but it had nothing to do with that formulaic church practice that I was accustomed to. So even before I could give a solid argument against it, I began to distance myself from the practice, and I I began to preach very shortly after I got saved. I refused to do it when I preached. So that's just a, there's a personal reason that God worked in my heart despite that practice, and I had already begun to be skeptical of the practice and the false hope that it was offering to me and to so many other people. So there's, there's a personal answer to one of the reasons why I'm, I'm against the altar call as a practice. Um, but now that I was a new believer, I actually began to study the Scriptures. And as I studied the Scriptures, I became even more convinced that the altar call practice wasn't very helpful. First of all, I just discovered that there was no magic prayer in Scripture. There was no magic process required for salvation. Um, I saw in the Gospels, in the book of Acts and the rest of the epistles, that the gospel was to be proclaimed. People People were called to repentance and faith. And the measure of a person's salvation wasn't tied to a ritual at all. It wasn't tied to a prayer. It wasn't um, tied to a, a visit to the altar. It was tied to the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, which evidences itself in faith in Christ and repentance from dead works. And so I just believe this statement is true. As I've studied the scriptures, I have come to see that the altar call is simply and completely absent from the pages of the New Testament. And what the pages of the New Testament show us and tell us should be done in the proclamation of the gospel and calls to faith and repentance, that, that's actually sufficient. It's actually sufficient. So I began, as I began to study the scriptures, I became convinced that the Bible didn't teach about that practice. 
And then I read some church history books, and I became even more convinced that the practice was problematic. Now, I'm not going to go into all the history of the altar call and the theology of conversionism and revivalism, but I will say that I discovered that the practice is a, is a fairly recent development in church history. The practice actually began in America, and it emerged in the 1800s. And no one knows exactly who did it first, um, but it, and no one knows who coined the phrases, but it became a common practice for churches to hold um, outdoor camp meetings. In fact, there were um, back in that particular time, this was around the time of the Second Great Awakening, back in that particular time, um, churches were known to not, not do communion with as much regularity as we might do it today. They would just basically have uh, communion seasons. It was a, maybe three times a year. So there was a season of the, church, of the life of the church where they would have outdoor meetings. They called them camp meetings. And there would be basically an interdenominational presence there. There would be uh, Presbyterians or Baptists, Campbellites, uh, Church of Christ, uh, there would be Methodists that would come, and all of those people would come, and the, the pastors or the preachers would share the pulpit, and they would preach the gospel uh, to everyone. And as all these people began to come, I mean, they would they would stay in tents, or they would stay in, um, you know, they might even stay in a wagon if they had all that, and they would come together, and at the end of this big camp meeting, these big camp seasons, they would all receive communion. And as a result of this, uh, with a, a little bit of a lack of um, ecclesiological oversight, um, certain practices became common. Uh, one of the first practices we see that comes out of this time period is the use of something called the anxious bench. The anxious bench. And this was a bench or a pew or even just a chair at the front of the meeting space. It was near the podium. Um, it, it was called the anxious bench because it was really close to the pastor or the preacher. And at a certain point in the service, the, the pastor would invite listeners to come forward who were concerned about the state of their souls. They were anxious about the state of their souls. And as these individuals came forward, um, the, well, the practice developed that they would, they would be invited to come to the altar to do business with God. Uh, over the state of their souls. And as people came forward um, to the anxious bench, to the altar, to do business with God because they're concerned about the state of their souls, the pastor or the preacher would come and he would counsel with them. He would counsel them towards repentance and faith. And this became such a widespread practice. It was so successful in producing conversions, and I, I've got air quotes going here, quote-unquote conversions, that it grew in popularity along with the practice uh, of, of this particular thing was also a theological impulse, right? So this, this practice was taking place, it was largely successful, and it was fueled by a particular theology of salvation, which was boiled down to decisionism. If someone made a decision for Christ at the altar, then they were saved. Right? The, the focus was not on the internal conviction of the Spirit in the heart. The focus was not on a clear articulation of the gospel. The focus was not on uh, repentance so much as it was on a decision, on an experience of grace. Now, the altar call, which you know began, and this whole process, which began at that time frame in the 19th century, it had never been seen before in any form like it's being used at that time. Uh, 
The altar call is historically absent up until the 19th century, and its use at that time via you know, Charles Finney and others was directly based upon what I consider to be bad theology and a man-centered manipulative method. Right? Now, there are two books that I would highly recommend you read if you want to learn more about the history of the altar call. And one of them was written by a good friend of mine named Jason Cherry. Um, Jason, uh, Jason and I served at the same church in Alabama for years. Just a, a dear friend, a brilliant young man. Um, and this book he wrote um, as he was finishing up his seminary degree. Um, and it's a very helpful. It's fairly short, but it's a summary of the relevant history. And the title of the book is The Culture of Conversionism and the History of the Altar Call. And you can find this on Amazon. You can get it for a couple of bucks um, in paperback or a couple of bucks in, in a Kindle format. But it's by Jason Cherry, The Culture of Conversionism and the History of the Altar Call. Now, the other book that I would recommend to you is a book by uh, Ian Murray. Ian Murray has written many biographies and works of history for Banner of Truth. And his book, uh, actually his was the first book that I read uh, that gave me some insight into this issue. And his book is titled Revival and Revivalism. Excellent book by Ian Murray, Revival and Revivalism. It's a longer treatment, and I'll just be honest, it's a little dry at times. But if you're, a very, if you're interested in this, it is well worth the effort so that you can learn more about the revival movement and how it shaped American evangelicalism and how it's still influencing the church today. So I've shared with you the angle of my own personal experience with this. I've shared with you a little bit about just what I did not see in Scripture. I've shared with you, you know, some of my understanding of history and how this whole thing played out. But let me give you, just as a way to round this whole thing out, let me give you some pastoral concerns that I have about the altar call. I'm just going to list out a few of these. Number one, the altar call confuses the physical act of coming forward with the spiritual act or the spiritual calling upon unbelievers to come to Christ. The two things get, um, get misconstrued. Just because a person comes forward in a service and speaks to the pastor, prays a prayer, draws out a card, and then makes some commitment doesn't necessarily mean that that person is truly born again, that they have truly been convicted in the heart by the Spirit of God, that they are truly coming to receive Christ and, and walking in repentance to Him. And so the practice itself confuses what it really truly means to come to Jesus. And, and so these two things often happen simultaneously. I'm not saying that individuals who walk the aisle never are genuinely saved, but a lot of times they aren't. And when you begin to confuse the two, you, you get that comment that was made to me by the individual a couple of weeks ago at the front door, where he, he simply said, you didn't give people an opportunity to respond to the gospel. In his mind, the altar call is the gospel. That's how you seal the deal. And if you don't do that, then you are, then you are short, shorting people out of an opportunity to respond to Christ. And that's just not true. The, the physical act of coming forward must not be confused with this spiritual act of genuinely coming to receive Christ by faith. So that's the first reason. Pastorally, these two things become confused. And I've seen this over and over and over. Now, number two, my second pastoral concern, is that the altar call can easily deceive people about the reality of their spiritual state and any biblical basis for assurance. Now, 
the Bible never offers us assurance based on a formulaic process. In fact, Jesus is arguing against that over and over again when he confronts the Pharisees. The the Old Testament prophets are arguing against that as they are confronting Israelites who who sin all the time and who transgress the boundaries of God's law, but then they make sacrifices and they think they're okay. And God says, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. The Bible never offers us an assurance of salvation based on a formulaic process that is empty or void of a true heart, conviction, and faith. The Bible actually calls us to faith in Christ, to repent of our dead works, and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And too many people have false assurance based on their altar call experience and nothing else. Now, I I did ministry in, in, in many different churches, a lot of churches in the South. One of them was in Alabama, and I would go to the homes of, uh, you know, older individuals, you know, men in their 70s plus, and I would talk to them about why they weren't in church. I would talk to them about the gospel, and, and I would have them tell me with, with striking regularity, I did my business with God a long time ago. And as I probed into that, I found out they, they walked an aisle one day when they were nine, and in their minds, they were safe. So the altar call can and does deceive people about the reality of their spiritual state. It gives them a false assurance. Number three, so that's my second pastoral concern. The third one is this. The altar call is often seen as the most important part of the service, right? Like that guy I talked to a couple of weeks ago. And and what this does is it de-emphasizes the truly more important parts of corporate worship, which God has prescribed like preaching and prayer and fellowship and singing and and receiving communion. I mean, there are there are outward signs that God has given us that we should do that show evidence of a changed life. And those things are faithfulness and worship and prayer and confession and coming forward for baptism and receiving the Lord's Supper. And, and, and all of these things are the biblical responses to the gospel changing a person's heart. But when we, when we employ the altar call, oftentimes that is seen as the most important thing that we can do. And it de-emphasizes those other, in, in my opinion, more important parts of corporate worship, which God has prescribed that we do. And fourth and lastly, and I know this has been a long podcast, so God is glorified to, to bless the things that he has prescribed, not the things we have invented. You cannot look throughout history and do an honest assessment of history, revival history especially, and come away with any other notion than the fact that this altar call process is an invention of man. It was, it was even referred to as the new methods. Um, and there were individuals like Charles Finney who said, I can, I can guarantee results. I can guarantee conversions because I employ these new methods. God is most glorified when we are faithful in the things that he has commanded us to do, like preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance and faith, like praying for the salvation of individuals, by singing the gospel in such a way that others can hear. He's he's more glorified in that than in us being dogmatically uh, attached to the things that we have invented. And so we should always be somewhat skeptical of adding to God's prescriptions for corporate worship. 
So those are four things that I would say, four angles and four pastoral concerns. I know that's a long answer to a short question, and there's so much more that can be said, but this is an important, this is an important question. And, and I do want to close with my conviction that when we gather as a church and when I stand to preach the gospel, I have a responsibility as a preacher of the word to call for faith and repentance, to, to proclaim the truth of the gospel and to call for faith and repentance. And that, I believe, is the biblical pattern that we see in the New Testament. The gospel is preached. People are called to faith and repentance. And I want that to happen every time I preach, even when I declare the gospel outside of the pulpit. And no altar call needs to be employed in order for that to happen. Now, I hope this has been helpful to you. It's probably raised more questions, so feel free to follow up with more questions or more comments on our social media accounts or by email through our website. If you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBCWiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. And you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your favorite podcast app is so that you can stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.